I think I could call it almost a universal experience that it is shockingly difficult to make new friends as an adult. You move to a new place, you start a new job, whatever your blank slate scenario is, where you have to meet new people, it's challenging. And then as a couple, can we talk about the high stakes task of making couple friends? You've done this, you've pre-gamed conversations in the car on the way to like a double date with a new couple that you don't really know. You've talked to your spouse about the things in your relationship you're gonna like downplay and not bring to the surface so that you don't come off too weird. Uh, how to best present yourselves. What we're trying to do is to make sure the other party of people think that we are likable. Normal, maybe. We want to present whatever version of ourselves is most palatable and uh, pleasing to them so that they will accept us. I think a lot of us subconsciously try to do this in our relationship with God. And the way that we do that is through the misconception that I get to unpack today. See, many of us have this concept in our heads, conscious or not, that it's God's main goal for our lives that we are good people. Full stop. That's the point. On the surface, it can make sense, right? And I mean, many times we have gotten Christianity wrong by over-focusing on what we can and cannot do, on behavior modification. We talk about patience and kindness and service and generosity, and I don't know where you're at today in this school of thought, but maybe you feel like all God cares about is whether or not you're a good person. That just being good is something that you signed up for. That's what it meant to become a Christian, to become a believer. That how good you are actually determines your standing with God. If he's going to love you, if you're going to go to heaven. So it's on you to check enough boxes, put enough do-gooder energy of yourself out in the world to be good enough. And if you believe that about God, if you feel like being good is a means to an end or a trade-off for God's love, for God's acceptance, for your eternal salvation, you're not alone in your thinking. Generally what I see, consciously or subconsciously, is that we feel this inherent need to prove to God or maybe to other Christians that we are good enough. We need to prove our goodness so that we might earn favor because all God cares about is whether or not we're good people. Now, a couple of things immediately come up as problems when we start believing this about God and when we start too, putting too much emphasis on being good. So I want to look at that together. I want to have, I have a couple honest questions uh, to ask you today as we consider this topic. So the first honest question I want to know is that who defines good? If all God cares about is that we're good, who defines what that looks like? My husband, Jonathan, gets Isla dressed every morning, and they go through this ritual as he lets her pick out different parts of her outfit. She has a lot of opinions about it. She's three. And at three, my daughter does not really have, like, a consideration for the weather when she's deciding on her vibe for the day. And so that sometimes means that they have an argument because it's 30 degrees outside and it's not time for a tank top or the boots with the fur in them. Not an 80-degree weather choice. But probably the most infuriating part for all of us is when she picks a shirt, my husband will then pick a corresponding pair of pants and put them on her, which is supposed to be a simple process, and she is vocal about what she thinks does and does not match. 
The other day we were trying to get her to wear a pair of pants with a shirt that was literally bought together. It is a coordinating outfit. The manufacturer was like soulmates. This pants, this shirt, it is made for one another. And she was in tears, insistent that it did not match and she could not wear the outfit. And let me tell you, she was wrong. My child has a completely nonsensical opinion about coordinating clothing. Let me show you an example. A recent example here is this purple heathered shirt situation with mustard sweatpants and jelly sandals that are like a coral pink orange color. She thought this was a really great outfit. Her daycare sent me this picture. This is my daughter's ideal outfit at the age of three, complete with the wig. If you wear this in front of her, she will think you are magic. What, who, who defines if an outfit is good? A student, uh, you know, who's in the know of the latest trends better than I am would have a different opinion. An adult, uh, you know, maybe that works outside or works inside, like they're gonna have different opinions of what a good outfit is. And when the definition of good is different to different people, I mean, that's not a problem when it comes to wardrobe, but that's a huge problem when it comes to what is good in our relationship with God. And in a few years, when Isla sees these outfits that she's picked out, is she still gonna have the same definition of good? These are the tame examples. <laughs> so we know that we really can't define what is good because if it's left up to us, good changes over time. And not just about the silly stuff, but as we develop new understandings as we go through life, we look back with hindsight about decisions that we made that we realized were unwise about opinions that we held that were ungodly, about systems we were a part of that were harmful. And good can be different for different people. I mean, who here in this room, show of hands please, likes pickles? Okay, who here does not like pickles? Okay, guys, we can't be trusted with a condiment. I don't really know <laughs> why we think we can have this conversation. Our definition is flawed. If we are to define what constitutes a good person, we will never agree on or stick to a definition. But that's not true with God. And so what is good? We usually default to thinking that you have to be good by doing and saying and acting in all the right ways. So like, let's follow that train of logic for a second. Jesus answered this question once in Luke chapter 18. A man asked him, a certain ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Ignoring the actual question, Jesus responded, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Is that true? So we want God to define what is good, and it looks like Jesus just defined good as unattainable. Why? I don't mean to shame anybody or unnecessarily beat us up, but if the standard is God, there is not like a close second to that. And God spends a lot of time in the pages of scripture laying out the ways that we are to live. Surely that will make us good, right? The Pentateuch is the first five books of our Old Testament in the Bible. And these are the books of the law for the Hebrews. There are some thick chapters in this book. I have a sneaking suspicion though that if we were to tally and keep count, our score would not be great. In total, there are 613 laws laid out in the Pentateuch. So in the days of Jesus, with these laws in place, there were these different sects of Judaism, including a group of people called the Pharisees. We're familiar with them, not really for a good reason. But it's generally believed that the Pharisees were formed with noble intentions. 
basically they got together because they wanted to live righteously. They wanted to preserve their faith from the evolving and encroaching culture around them. And their intention here was to be good, to be honoring to God in the way that they lived in the way that they followed the law. Ancient historian uh, Josephus wrote in his History of the Jewish War, the Pharisees had, quote, a reputation of excelling the rest of the nation in the observance of religion, leagues ahead, and as exact exponents of the law. They knew it was written, they did what was written. Y'all, nobody is good. God laid out the guardrails, and look at the example of these people. They were killing it. But we know the Pharisees as Jesus' antagonists and as his detractors. You see, their zeal for good, they began expanding on the laws in place, creating more clarifications, more guardrails, and then judging and condemning people who couldn't live up to those examples and expectations. For one example, one of the commandments is about keeping the Sabbath holy, which meant that the Jews were supposed to rest and not work on Saturdays. But to clarify this, Jewish scholars laid out 39 different subcategories of what work is, and then under each of those also had different subcategories and definitions, so that we were at the place where they had written in their law how many steps you could take on the Sabbath, how many letters you could write before it was considered work, and before you were not doing something you were supposed to and you were breaking the law. With so many rules, one couldn't help but focus on that, the doing and the actions. And this is Jesus' critique of the Pharisees, their legalism, their focus on the external appearance alone of their fulfilling of the law. Jesus had harsh words for these people. In Matthew, he says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee! First clean the inside of the cup and the dish, and then the outside will also be clean. He continues, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs. You look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Jesus is telling them that even if they're doing everything perfectly according to the law, when he looks at their hearts, they are full of muck. In their original intent to follow God fully, they focused so much on how to present themselves pure to God by what they were and weren't doing that they just became hyper-critical and judgmental. These guys are a classic example of the ends justifying the means, except they don't. Because Jesus is saying the outside doesn't matter if the inside is terrible. We can't paint all the Pharisees with one brush. There were some, uh, even named through the Gospels, who were earnestly seeking the truth and trying to figure things out. But as a whole, this mob mentality of their legalism was not winning God over in the way that they thought it was. The Pharisees' desire to always do the correct, right thing did not make them good in the eyes of God. They missed the mark. And so if they didn't get it, even though they were trying really, really, really hard, being good must maybe not be the goal. Is good really about the facade of yourself that you are presenting to the world? The second honest question is, should good be our goal? 
We think that all God cares about is whether or not we are good. And then we try to make an argument that we can define what good is and that there is a good enough to make God love us or proud of us. But it would seem that we can't really define what good is and that we might not be good enough. Romans 3 quotes several different Old Testament passages when it says, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Later in the chapter, it continues, therefore no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our own sin. Church, today I have very good, be- good news and very bad news um, for all of us. If good is our ultimate goal, we will never reach it. C.S. Lewis uh, is quoted, no man knows how bad he is until he has tried very hard to be good. I mean, try as I might, there is nothing perfect about me. I, I try to be patient. Am I patient enough? I try to be kind. Am I kind enough? I'm getting gentler, but at what point is it enough? At what point are we good enough? My daughter, again, is three, so she's a really easy target. (laughs) But we have a hard time with eating dinner. And if she doesn't eat enough, she wakes up at 2 a.m. and expects me to bring her a cheese stick, which I will not anymore. And so my ask of my daughter is to eat dinner. This is what I require of you. Eat this food that is in front of you. What actually happens is a whole circus of bargaining and redirecting and reminding and justifying until she's eaten something. Can I say she ate dinner? (laughs) No, (laughs) I cannot. Can I say she ate some of her dinner? Yes. Can I say she ate enough dinner. The only way we'll know is to judge by what happens that night. It is a coin toss. There is no assurance. See, we, church, feel fear so badly that our good won't be good enough. We are so afraid that our good won't be good enough. A lot of us do this thing with God where we make him like the cosmic morality police. All he cares about is whether we are good or bad people. And that is measured on some sort of weighted scale where one marble is added on one side if we do something good and a marble is added on the other side if we do something bad. And we think that's the extent to which he involves himself. I mean, sure, God roots for us from the rafters. I hope this kid figures it out, doesn't screw up too bad. But we have to be good enough first for him to engage with us, for good things to happen to us, for us to receive eternal salvation from him. We think if God isn't answering my prayers, it's because I'm not good enough. We think if something bad happened to my family, it's because I wasn't a good enough person. Will I get into heaven? Ooh, I don't know. I just hope I'm not one marble off at the end of everything. I've tipped the scales in my favor. You know, I need to tell you, none of that is true. None of it. Tim Keller has this quote that describes the gospel of Jesus Christ like this. He says, we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. (laughs) Uh Uh-oh. So there's the answer. Our good is not good enough. 
we were not even close. But he continues, yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared to hope. If the two are both true at the same time, we're a mess, that we're not good enough, that we don't measure up, but also that we are dearly loved and accepted by Jesus, it seems that there is not a causation between goodness and God's love and acceptance like we maybe thought there was. So the hardest part of this to wrap my mind around is not that God exists or that there's eternity or that there is a truth that I am unable to humanly grasp or fully understand. I'm on board with all of that. The mind-boggling part to me is that when sin entered the problem, when humans realized we weren't all that good on our own, God didn't just wipe his hands of us. Oh, man. The human project, that experiment, they were really cute. And I kind of hope they figure this goodness thing out. And we can see where it goes. And then, you know, spent the last several thousand years watching us try in earnest and fall on our faces and be one marble off on the scale That's not how he responded. No, what is extraordinary and confounding is that the creator of the universe, the author of eternity, the definition of what is good is so infatuated with you that he did not disengage from you. God looked at himself and went, ooh, we need a rescue plan here. And he got so involved that he sent a very part of himself to rectify the fact that we are never good enough not pridefully, not to punish us, not to shame us, but to build a bridge of opportunity to bring us back to himself. That's what Jesus did. And so the last honest question I have this morning is if good is not the goal, what is? Remember at the beginning we talked about making friends as adults and how that's not hard for any of you like it is for me? I'm just trying to guess what might make them like us and want to be around us. I can tell you for certain, God's main concern is not how good of a person you are. It is not all that God wants from you, and it is not the factor that teeters you between God's acceptance and his rejection. It's not. So where does does that leave us? What do we do with that? What is really pleasing to God is the question. The prophet Micah wondered this as well as he was confronted with the reality of his nation's sin against God and its need to reconcile. He lamented and questioned this as well. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? What do I do? If I cannot be good enough, can I be sorry enough? Can I be generous enough? Can I sacrifice enough of myself or my property? Can I punish myself enough for God? He continues, though. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. What is good for us? To act justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with God. He wants 
to be with us. He wants to form us. He wants our hearts to be shaped like his heart is shaped. God's main concern is not that you are good. And that is great news for us because we're not. But when we do what he says is good, something else takes place. See, here's what happens when we walk humbly with God is he takes root in us. And all the rest of it starts to happen. Jim Rohn was this famous motivational speaker. He first uh, said this concept you've probably heard of before, that we are the average of the five people we spend most of our time with. Lots of people have tried to affirm this or refute this or expand on this. It's more than five people, but all of them can agree that we are naturally very influenceable for the better or for the worse. And I have uh, this habit of developing phrases that I'm unaware of, Kate-isms, if you will. And it's been happening for years. I really first became aware of it in college. A friend of mine and I were talking on the phone about this girl he had started dating. And he's like, oh, and she says this thing, just like you say. And I was like, what do I say? And I can't tell you at the given moment what my currently adopted phrases are until I hear one of them come out of someone else's mouth. And this happened last week, in the office last week. Amy said something, our communications director, Brandon, immediately said, oops, spending too much time around Kate. And I asked him to remind me, what was it that Amy said that, that sounded like me? And he rattled off like five different things that it could have been, that he's now heard other coworkers in the office say, because we spend so much time around each other. We kind of meld into each other's language. Have you ever heard something come out of your own mouth that sounded like someone else that you knew? We have a choice in our own becoming. We become like the environment we're in. We become like the people that we are around. We become like the influences that we spend our time and our money and our energy investing in. And when God invites us to walk humbly with him, he is not only inviting us to relationship, he is inviting us to become like him. Let him rub off on us. And in doing that, his goodness rubs off on us too. Walking humbly with God means I start seeing people the way that God sees people. I might start demonstrating grace to other people around me based on the grace that I have received that my heart might get stirred up to injustice around me and burn for the oppressed like God's heart does, that my mind and my heart might align with my soul in decision-making that is pleasing and representative of him. And you know what? That is starting to sound like a, like a lot like natural goodness. It's a positive effect of walking humbly alongside of God, letting him show us where we're walking and walking in his footsteps. C.S. Lewis again, he says, the Christian doesn't think God will love us because we're good, but that God will make us good because he loves us. We are a people in progress. And God knows exactly what he is signing up for when we say yes to him. He is not surprised or disappointed in where you're at when you come to him. He isn't looking for you to be a certain percent good before you show up. He is thrilled to have you walk with him humbly so that you might become like him. That's what he's after. Jesus laid this out in John chapter 14 to his disciples. He said, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My father will love them and we will come to them and we will make our home in them. He wants to make his home in you. Walking humbly with God will cause us to fall more deeply in love with him. 
And when we love someone, we invite them to be with us. We want to do things that are honoring of them and representative of them and pleasing to them. But can you see how that is different than God caring whether or not you are good? That is not God's chief concern, as has long been observed and quoted. Christ did not live and die to make bad people good, but dead people alive. That is what he's after. If we are asking, if we are good enough for God, we are asking the wrong question. God doesn't ultimately care that you're good. He cares that you know him. And that influences you. And he invites you to know him at any point. If, if this is news to you today, I or a member of our hospitality team or our online hosts or other staff would love to talk with you more about this. We get the opportunity to respond to the grace and the openness that God extends to us at any moment. That's just how he is. So let's pray together as we close. Father God, I am very thankful that you are good and that I am not, and that you make that definition, and I don't. But I'm also grateful for the level of grace and mercy you pour out on us. I'm grateful for your invitation to walk humbly with you, that you might hold our hand and show us the way, and that in doing that, I might get the opportunity to become more like you. We thank you that you don't keep yourself and your goodness from us because we don't measure up. Father, thank you for who you are, and who we get to become because of that. In Jesus' name.